Section 3 of The Meadow Sprite and Other Tales of Modern Germany. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, not to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Meadow Sprite and Other Tales of Modern Germany. The Gold Tree by Rudolf Baumbach. Translated by Gertrude R. Schottenfels. The room in which this story takes place was very simply furnished. Its walls were whitewashed, and their only ornament consisted of a couple of maps, yellow with age. Two narrow beds stood close to the wall, and on the opposite side of the room was a bookshelf and a wardrobe, upon the top of which rested a globe used in studying the earth. In the centre of the room was a long ink-stained table, and at the table on two hard wooden chairs two boys, about twelve years of age, bent over their books. The one with light hair was poring over a volume of Cornelius Nepos, the first book used by students of Latin, and a well-thumbed dictionary. Every now and then a sigh escaped him. The brown-haired lad was working out a program in cubic root of the ninth power. The Latin student was named John, and the mathematician Harry. Occasionally the boys would raise their heads from their work to gaze longingly out of the open window through which the buzzing flies flew in and out. What a shame to be cooped up in an old schoolroom while the golden sunlight bathed every tree and hedge in the garden in a blaze of glory. And as if to mock them, a blooming twig of lilac exhaled its sweetness right in the open window. Another hour must elapse ere they could gain their freedom, and the minutes crept along as slowly as the snails beneath the gooseberry bush outside. No, it was impossible to shorten their misery, for just outside in the next room their tutor, Dr. Cudgel, sat at his desk, and the door between the two rooms was wide open. He was supposed to be busy with his writing, but the boys knew well enough that he had seated himself there purposely to keep his eye on them. Oh, no, there was no escaping that study hour. Cornelius Nepos might have done something better than to have crossed the old Alps, grumbled John half audibly, while nine times eighty are seven hundred and twenty, murmured Harry in subdued undertones. Then they stole a look at each other, made a grimace, and yawned. Suddenly they heard a loud buzzing. A beetle, which had been exploring the lilacs outside, had flown into the room by mistake. It circled round their heads three times, and then fell, plump, into the inkwell. "'It served the stupid thing right for coming in here,' said Harry, in low tones. 
Why didn't he stay out there in the golden sunshine where he was well off? But to be drowned in ink? No, really, that is too miserable a death even for a dolt. Wait, comrade, and I'll rescue you. He was going to help the struggling insect out with a penholder, but John forestalled him in the work of rescue by holding out his finger to the drowning mite. Then they dried him nicely on a blotter, and looked on with interest while he cleaned himself with his forelegs. "'Look, he has a red breastplate and black horns,' said John, wiping his inky finger on his hair. "'He must be king of the gold beetles. He lives in a castle of jasmine flowers and rose petals. His musicians are crickets and locusts, and he has the glow-worms for his torch-bearers. "'You silly thing!' cried Henry. But John continued, "'And whoever meets this king of the gold-beetles is in truth born under a lucky star. Look out, Henry, something is going to happen, an adventure, or something out of the ordinary. And, come to think of it, today is the first of May,' and more than one wonder has occurred on May Day, as you well know. See how he beckons us with his feelers and raises his wing-shields. First thing we know, he will be transformed into a little elf, clad in royal robes, with a crown of gold upon his brow. Yes, silly, he will fly away, laughed Henry. Look, there he goes. What did I tell you? Both boys ran to the window to look after the beetle, but the flashing little jewel of the air had already winged his circling flight afar and was out of sight beyond the garden wall. Just then they heard a distinct hemming and hawing in the next room where their tutor sat, and they hastened back to their lessons. Suddenly John whispered, "'See, the wonder begins!' and pointed to the inkstand out of which a slender green twig was growing before their very eyes it grew and grew until it touched the ceiling we are surely dreaming declared henry rubbing his eyes no this is a real-life fairy tale and we are living in it cried john rejoicingly and the twig spread sideways and bore branches and twigs with leaves and blossoms. The ceiling of the room disappeared, the walls melted away as by magic, and a dusky forest surrounded the astonished boys. "'Forward!' commanded John, pulling the resisting Henry along with him. "'Here comes our adventure!' The blooming shrubbery parted of its own accord and opened up a pathway for the boys. The sunlight broke through the lattice of the forest trees and lay in a thousand golden flecks upon the mossy carpet. Star-eyed blossoms of glowing colors sprang up out of the moss and curling tendrils twined about the tree trunks. Songbirds of brilliant plumage fluttered in the trees overhead and deer and other forest animals sprang nimbly through the bushes. At last the trees grew less closely together, and a rosy light shone through their trunks, and John whispered in tones of excitement, 
Here it comes. They crossed an open meadow in the center of which stood a solitary tree. Yet it was no ordinary tree, you may be sure. No, indeed, it was the wonder tree of which John had so often heard, the tree with leaves of gold. Both boys stood speechless in amazement. Then suddenly a dwarf emerged from behind the tree. He was no larger than a three-year-old child, but he was not misshapen, as dwarfs so frequently are. Far from it. He was beautifully formed, graceful and slender, and he wore a green mantle and bore a golden helmet on his head. It needed but a glance to tell both boys who stood before them. He came a few steps nearer and made a deep curtsy. The enchanted princess awaits her deliverer, he said. Which one of you will undertake the hazardous enterprise? I will, cried John in eager accents. The dwarf immediately led forth a snow-white steed and stood holding its golden bridle. Don't go, I beg of you, John, pleaded Harry fearfully. But John was already in the saddle. The magic horse sprang neighing in the air, and with tail and mane flying, sped swiftly into the forest. A shining golden beetle flew ahead of them, as though guiding them along. John turned around for a last look at Harry, and saw him still standing under the gold tree. Then boy and tree disappeared from view. It was a glorious ride. John sat in his saddle as securely as though he were on his accustomed school chair instead of a horse. He had to laugh when he thought that only one short hour ago he had been sighing over Cornelius Nepos and trembling at the thought of Dr. Cudgel. For, in the meantime, the little schoolboy in short jacket had grown into a fine-looking horseman with long coat and vest and sword and spurs. Thus he sped through the enchanted forest. At length his horse set up a friendly neighing. The forest grew lighter and lighter. A few steps more, and horse and rider stopped before a marble palace. Bright banners floated from its gleaming turrets, and bugles and trumpets sounded a glad welcome. And, best of all, on the balcony stood the enchanted princess, waving a snowy kerchief. She resembled his neighbor, Helene, with whom he had played when he was a boy at school, only she was larger and a thousand times more beautiful. John now sprang out of the saddle and hastened up the steps, his spurs jingling merrily as he went. There was a man at the castle gate, the seneschal, no doubt, but how strangely familiar he seemed to our hero. Suddenly he advanced toward the newcomer, stretched out his hand, and gave poor John a ringing box on the ear, crying, "'Fell asleep, did you, you sluggard? Wait, I'll attend to you!' The enchantment came to an untimely end, and John found himself once more at the ink-stained table 
with Cornelius Naples and his Latin dictionary close at hand. Across from him, Harry was still busy with his figures, while nearby stood Dr. Cudgel, staring at him through his glasses in the most forbidding manner. When their study period came to an end and the boys found themselves at length in the garden, enjoying their afternoon lunch under the shade of the lilacs, John told what a wonderful dream he had had. "'How strange!' cried Harry at its conclusion. "'I myself had the self-same dream, only it ended differently.' "'How did yours end? Go on, tell me all about it,' begged John, breathless with excitement. "'I did not see the enchanted castle, but my dream was identical with yours till we came to the gold tree.' Then you mounted the snow-white steed and rode away to release the princess, where I remained behind, shook the tree, and filled all my pockets with gold leaves. Then that stupid tutor woke me, and my glory had an end. "'Harry!' cried John earnestly, grasping his hand. "'Believe me, when two people have the self-same dream, it is sure to come true. "'That dream was a prophecy. You mark my words.' "'Then the boys finished their lunch and went off to play ball. "'And was the dream fulfilled?' you will ask. "'Indeed it was, and even to the smallest detail.' John became a poet and rode his pegasus through the green woods of poesy, while Harry, who in the dream shook the magic tree and pocketed the golden leaves, became his publisher. End of chapter 3